Well, I'm ready to jump into the fourth message today of our Behold series. I'm so glad you're here for it, whether you've been a part of all of the series or if this is just your first time you're celebrating the holidays with us this Christmas season. I want you to know this idea of beholding is, is all throughout Scripture, and the word really just means to, to, to look, to come and see, to pay attention. It's a word that's used in the Hebrew language to arrest our attention and it's all throughout the scriptures. And we've been celebrating the Advent wreath each Sunday, lighting one of these candles that represent uh, the first one representing God's love. And we said, behold, the king. Christ, uh, Christ is the king. And we, we lit the lamp of hope, uh, saying that Christ came to bring hope to the world. The second one was the, the light of love. And that was the message of beholding the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week, we lit the third candle, which is the candle of joy. And with that joy, we, we made a declaration to behold the babe in the manger. The humanity of Jesus gives, gives handles to, to our God. He makes him familiar and followable to us. But today we light this fourth candle, and this one is the candle of peace. As Pastor Chris said a moment ago, we'll light the final candle, the Christ candle, on Saturday in all of our services. But I want to begin this message by sharing with you a verse about the peace that Christ came to bring. It's in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. And here's what it says about Jesus. For he himself is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Let me tell you what I love about that verse. That word both is not talking about both us and God, though he certainly came to bring us peace with God. It's talking about both people, uh, different types of people that were in opposition to each other. Now, I don't know what your, what your anxiety level is as you anticipate getting together with family next week, but for some of you, I think maybe you need this word of peace today, that God came to bring peace and reconciliation, not just with us and God, but with us and others. And maybe the, the most potent modern-day illustration of that is the story of missionaries Don and Joy Richardson. Maybe you've heard the story or even seen the documentary about them, but Don Richardson, back in the 60s, answered the call of God to take the gospel to the Sawi people of Erie and Jaya. And when they went to those people, uh, they, they really stepped into a whole nother world. The Sawi people were really a, like a people from the Stone Age. I mean, up till the 50s, it was documented that they still practiced cannibalism. They were a warring people with the other tribes around them. And so for months, Don and his wife, Joy, and they, they came with a seven-month-old seven baby, if you can imagine that. For months, they lived in horrible conditions. They ate terrible food. They endured harsh natural elements. But all the while, Joy was showing the love of Christ through uh, medical missions. She was meeting people's physical needs. Meanwhile, Don was trying to learn the language. They hadn't learned that yet. And he was trying to understand the culture so that he would have an opportunity to share the gospel. Finally, the day came. He felt like he had enough of a grasp on it. He shares the gospel with the Sawi people. And when he gets to the part of the story where Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver... All of the people erupted in applause. He missed this cultural cue that in the Sawi tribe, they celebrated treachery. So Judas was the hero of the story. 
He was so frustrated with all of the fighting that was happening. They were ready to give up. They told the people, we're, we're going to leave. We're going to just leave if, if all this fighting doesn't stop. And then the people did something that absolutely astounded the Richardsons. They enacted a traditional ceremony that was a part of their culture. And, and the ceremony was this, that if one tribe would bring a son, a newborn son of one of the fathers, and give that child to the other tribe, it was a sign of peace between them. Moreover, anyone that touched that child would then be a part of that peace covenant. And when Don Richardson saw this played out, these tribes that were at war came together and exchanged newborn sons. They called that child the peace child. When he saw that play out, he knew how he was going to share the gospel. So he told the story again. And this time, when the people got excited about Judas' treachery as he uh, sold Jesus over, for 30 pieces of silver, Don explained to them that Jesus was the peace child. And all of a sudden, the gospel made sense. What's amazing about the story is, fast forward, uh, 2018, two days before Christmas, Don Richardson passed away. But before he died, he had a chance to go back with his now-grown sons to visit the Sawi people. And when they got there, those tribes that were at war with each other we're now living in harmony. In fact, they were sharing leadership positions in the church. So that's a snapshot of what it looks like when the word of God says that Jesus himself is our peace. So can I just encourage you today that whatever conflict you may be facing, some unresolved tension in your heart and in your mind, in your soul with God, or maybe it's relational, maybe it's with other people, know today that Jesus came to bring the peace of God. The Bible says in Romans 15, Paul describes God as the God of peace. He speaks blessing over God's people, and he says this, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In the next chapter, he says this, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I mean, isn't that a great word of encouragement? To know when you're up against the enemy, he's not just defeated under Jesus' feet, he's defeated under your feet. And if God is the God of peace, then Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We sang it earlier, His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. That's what the Word declares to us in Isaiah chapter 9. But I want to key in on the first part of that verse. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, For unto us a child is Born. Last week, as we talked about beholding the babe, we were talking about beholding the humanity of Jesus. He was the son of Mary. He became familiar and followable to us because he came in the flesh. But the next part of that verse says, unto us a son is given. So on this fourth Sunday of Advent, I want to encourage you to behold the son of God today. For unto us a son is given. Matthew begins the Christmas story with the genealogy of Jesus. I know it's easy reading and you all love that part of the story, but I'm only going to read two of the verses. He begins in verse one and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I know many of you are familiar with it after that. It says, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And all these names you have a hard time pronouncing. And usually we just kind of skip over that or skim read it. But let me bookend it with the last statement he makes in verse 17. 
He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Aren't you glad I didn't read all 42 names? (laughs) Understand this. Of all the things that he could emphasize, he begins talking about Jesus being the son of David and the son of Abraham. And he ends with saying Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham is the most famous person in human history. I mean, there are three major religions of the world that find their genesis in Abraham. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all trace back to Abraham. The New Testament says Abraham is the father of our Faith. Now, I'm emphasizing Abraham because I want you to see today that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's not a revelation that should surprise God's people today any more than it surprised God's people when he sent his Son. Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, God gives us the most clear illustration of who Jesus came to be as the Son of God in all of the Bible. And so I want to invite you today to just do a little Bible study with me. All right, maybe less of a sermon. I just want to show you some things in God's Word. In Genesis chapter 22, go there if you have a Bible. We're going to walk through this text. Many of you, you're familiar with the story. It's the one where, where God tells Abraham, I want you to go to a mountain I'm going to show you, and I want you to make a sacrifice to me. But the hard part of the story is, he says, I want you to take your son Isaac on this three-day journey with you. But the hardest part of the story is, he says, I want Isaac, your son, to be the sacrifice. This son that you prayed for, this son that you longed for, this son that I told you I would give you, and I didn't answer that prayer until you were over 100 years old. This son that is the key to the promise of me making you the father of many nations. Yeah, that son, I want you to sacrifice him on the altar as a test of your love. So we see this story in Genesis chapter 22. And as we read it, What I want you to see is the similarities between Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Jesus, the son of God. It's all here to set the stage for the arrival of Jesus. God, in his foreknowledge, knew his plan of salvation. The Bible says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. So God sets the stage carefully and meticulously here in Genesis chapter 22. And as you see these parallels, you're going to come to realize, if you don't know already, that there's no way anyone could write this story except for God. Let me just give you some of the parallels. In Genesis chapter 22, actually, let me back up. Before I even get to Genesis 22, let me tell you a couple things that are interesting. Number one, both Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Jesus, the son of God, were children of a promise. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, The one, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Because he and his wife couldn't have kids, he assumed that his servant would be the heir to his throne. But God said, no, I'm promising you a son from your own body. And then you remember in the Christmas story, the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. And he said, and she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Then two verses later it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated 
God with us. So both the children were children of promise. Both the children were announced by angels to Abraham in Genesis 18.10. He said to him, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. But to Mary, the angel appeared in Luke chapter 1, and it says in verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So over and over, the, the, the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers to say, look at this, now look at this, look, behold this, now behold this. Not only were both of them children of promise and announced by angels, they were both named by God before they were born. God told Abraham to name his son Isaac. In fact, when he told him that, Sarah was standing in the doorway of the tent and she heard that and the Bible says she laughed. She laughed because she was 90 years old. She laughed at the idea of her having a child because she knew in the natural it was impossible but when Mary said she, she couldn't have a son and she laughed at the idea because she was barren, the Bible says in Genesis 18, 14, the Lord responded, is anything too hard for the Lord? When Mary heard she was pregnant with Jesus, she said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, in the natural, this is impossible. And in Luke 1, the word, the word says the angel told her, for with God, all things are possible. So not only were they named before they were born, but both of their births were supernatural. We haven't even gotten to Genesis 22 where I start to show you the parallels between Isaac and Jesus, but I'm telling you, God wants to put a story together to make it crystal clear for us to know who his son really is. Can I remind you before we start reading Genesis 22 that these two stories are 42 generations apart. There's a lot of names, a lot of family history. They're now speaking different languages when these stories were written. And yet God makes it abundantly clear who the Son of God is. He wants you to recognize Him this Christmas season. Behold, the Son of God. Let's begin in verse 2. Genesis 22, verse 2. Then He said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, there's about four or five things right here in this one verse that are pretty astounding. Let me give you a few of them. First of all, Isaac and Jesus are both called the one and only son. That, now, that's interesting because in Genesis uh, 22, God repeats that phrase several times. See, when God inspired the writers to write the Bible, he didn't give them a highlighter. He didn't give them italics or bold or underline. So the way that God highlights something that he wants you to understand is he just repeats it. He says it again. And so in verse 2, he, he calls Abraham to sacrifice his one his son, his one and only son. And then in verse 12, he says, you have not withheld your son, your one and only son. In verse 16, he says, you have not withheld your son, your one and only son. Now, here's what's funny about that. Just this last Wednesday night at our prayer gathering, I preached about Abraham's other son, Ishmael. 
he had another son, an older son. And yet when he talks about Isaac, God says over and over again, I want you to know this is your son, your one and only son. And the reason we, we miss the significance of that is because often we don't understand that the Hebrew word only isn't translated to be the only one. What it actually means is unique, the only one of its kind. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. That's talking about you and me. So God has many children, and yet John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Look at verse 2 again. God says, Take now your only Son, Isaac, whom you love. And there's another interesting parallel. Both Isaac and Jesus were loved by their father. Now, I know you think, man, that, that's a stretch. I mean, you could say that about almost any kid out there, loved by their father. But know this, verse 2 of Genesis 22 is the first time we see the word love in the Bible. So of all the ways that love is demonstrated, of all the ways that, that love is, the love of God even is emulated in relationships, God chose to highlight love for the first time through an example of a father's love for his son. You know what's amazing? When you get over to the New Testament, what we discover is the first time we see love in the Gospels, it's the father's love for his son. In Matthew's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, they all speak of the moment when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and when Jesus came up out of the water, he heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I love. They were loved by, the, you know, John's gospel is a little different. The first time John mentions love is John 3.16. But yet still it's similar. Because he communicates that Abraham in his love for God gave up his son. And John 3.16 says God in his love for us gave up his son. There's something he wants to communicate to us about the father's love. Look at verse two again. God says, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this is a hard thing. I mean, I can't even imagine God asking me or anyone to sacrifice their son. In fact, a lot of people, they're puzzled by this story when they read it because Honestly, this doesn't sound like something God would do to test your obedience. But God doesn't just ask him to do a hard thing by sacrificing his son on an altar. He tells him to go specifically to a mountain range that is a three-day journey away. It's 50 miles away. And he's supposed to take his son on this journey to go to a specific mountain range so that when he gets there, God can show him exactly where to go. It's interesting to note that the name Moriah, the mountain range they went to, means chosen by Jehovah. It would later become Jerusalem. The very place where Jesus laid down his life at Calvary. In other words, of all the places God could have sent Abraham with his son Isaac, he sent him to Calvary. It says in this text that he was supposed to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, now that doesn't sound like the cross at all. That's a different kind of sacrifice. But it says Isaac was supposed to be a burnt offering. And yet, again, 
God repeats the phrase, burnt offering, burnt offering. He, he wants to make sure that Abraham understands this is not just any sacrifice. This is specifically a burnt offering. Between verse 2 and verse 13, God says burnt offering six times. That's like every other verse. It's, it's so redundant. You can't miss the fact that he wants Isaac to be a burnt offering. Leviticus tells us what a burnt offering is. Leviticus 1 says a burnt offering is a sacrifice for sin. And then in verse 4, it describes to us how the priest is supposed to make the sacrifice. It says, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. In other words, the priest is sinful like every other person. And so when he comes with the burnt offering, he's supposed to put his hand on the sacrifice's head. In other words, his iniquities go on the sacrifice so that he can have atonement made for him. It's interesting that in Isaiah 53, the prophet spoke of Jesus, and he said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. In 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter writes that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Three times in Leviticus, it speaks of the burnt offering as a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. That, that the sacrifice, the aroma of the sacrifice burning on the altar is a sweet aroma to God. And so when Paul the Apostle wrote to the Ephesian church about what Jesus has done in Ephesians 5, he said he gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet smelling aroma. Why? Because Jesus came to fulfill the purpose of the burnt offering. Though he wasn't burned at the cross, he fulfilled the purpose of that offering. It's interesting that when you read this story in Genesis 22, it says in verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Here's another similarity. Both Isaac and Jesus carried the wood up the hill. Jesus carried the cross to Calvary, and Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice, and both men willingly laid their life down. Like, I think maybe it's because of like the, the pictures that I used to color in Sunday school, but I grew up with a false sense of this picture because the pictures that we always colored was, you know, Abraham was this old man, big beard, and, and then he had this little boy with him that he was going to lay down on the altar. But, but we know from what we just read that Isaac wasn't some little boy. I mean, he carried the wood, enough wood to build an altar for a sacrifice to be consumed on the altar. He carried the wood all the way up the mountain. So we know that he was not too young, and we also know that Abraham is over 100 years old. So what I'm saying is if, if Isaac didn't want to go, if he didn't want to be a part of that, I'm pretty sure he had a fighting chance. Like, you know, I mean, think about it. I mean, three days into a, a Mediterranean journey, 100 plus years old, I don't think Abraham's in his prime in this moment. And yet Isaac carried the wood 
up to Mount Moriah, and he laid down his life as a sacrifice to God. And he wasn't even being punished for anything he had done. He was laying down his life in obedience to his father. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself, and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And when you go to Genesis 23, we find out in the next chapter that that Isaac's mom, Sarah, was 127 years old when she died. She was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. She's 127 years old when she dies. So that means there's 37 years that have lapsed between there. Now, we don't know exactly how old Isaac was in chapter 22 between the time that she gave birth to him and the time that she dies in chapter 23. But if I had to just take a guess, I'm going with 33 and a half years old. Because that's exactly how old Jesus was when he carried the cross. And laid down his life for us. Both Jesus and Isaac had questions for their father. As Isaac was walking with his father, verse 7 says, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? How many of you know, like, Isaac had some questions. He's like walking, you know, like, okay, Dad. We're getting close to the top of the mountain. See that knife you're carrying? See that fire? I got a lot of wood here. Where's the lamb? But you know, Jesus had questions too. The Bible says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to continue to go. And it's interesting that that's the last thing we hear from Isaac. In other words, he went as a sacrifice and he went in silence. And the Bible says that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. 42 generations have passed before Jesus comes on the scene. And every generation was looking for the fulfillment of what Abraham said next. Look at verse 8. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. He had no idea how prophetic his words were in that moment. God himself, he will provide for himself a lamb. And and, and for the, the next 42 generations, that's what the people of Israel were looking for. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? How how do we get in right relationship with God? How do we get justified before God? How do we get our sins atoned for? What's going to give us right standing? What's going to make us holy? What's going to make us acceptable? Where is the lamb? Until finally, one day on the outskirts of Bethany, beside the Jordan River, Jesus comes walking along the shore, and John the Baptist sees him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just like Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb. Verse 9 and 10 tell us that 
Abraham and Isaac, they made their way to the top of the mountain, the place of sacrifice. They, they built the altar there. They arranged the wood. It says, Abraham bound Isaac's hands. Just the same way Mark 15, 1 says, and the chief priests bound the hands of Jesus. Then Abraham lifted up the knife. He put one hand on his son's head. He lifted up the knife to slay his son. But this is the moment where all the similarities cease. The Bible says in Genesis 22 and verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am, God. And he said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. But for Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket. Jesus came to be the sacrifice. He came without another substitute. He was the substitute for our sins. Isaac was spared, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul writes, but God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. And so when we think about what we're celebrating this Christmas, Isaiah 9 and 6, for unto us a child is born, but a son is given. I want to challenge you today to behold the Son of God, for who He came to be and what He actually came to do. We could go on and on with the parallels. It's interesting that the Bible says when Abraham and Isaac went, they took two servants with them. In the same way, there were two that accompanied Jesus to the cross. Two criminals that were crucified on his right and on his left. And yet, when Abraham and Isaac got to the base of the mountain the Lord wanted to show them, he said to the servants, you stay here. The boy and I are going to go up to make the sacrifice. In other words, those that were with him were not going to be allowed to see the exchange. They were not going to be allowed to see the moment of sacrifice. And it was the same with Jesus. Though many were there, the Bible says as he hung on the cross... The sky went dark for three hours. No one was going to see the moment that the weight of the sin of the world was laid upon him as the Son of God hung there, suspended between heaven and earth. The sky was dark for three hours. And then the Bible tells us there was a violent earthquake, so, so violent that the rocks split in two. The veil in the temple, the curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. And then it says this, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. It is finished. This isn't the voice of somebody who's, who's finally, finally out of strength. This isn't the voice of somebody who can't go any farther. This isn't the voice of, of somebody who's spent, though, yes, Jesus was fully human. He was also fully God with all power and authority in his hands. And he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it up again. And he did. So he wasn't out of strength. It was the appointed time. 
In a loud voice, he said, it is finished. And then the Bible says, he let out a deep sigh. And he died. But we have an eyewitness. Though no one could see what happened in the darkness in the middle of day, there was one who was close, closer than the disciples who stayed, closer than his own mother. There was a centurion who orchestrated the execution of Jesus and the other two and probably hundreds or thousands others. He was right there. He felt the earth shake. He heard Jesus' voice. He saw him die. And all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record his words. I'll read from Luke's gospel. In Mark 15, it says, So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That's the revelation that we need to have in our hearts today. That Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God, who willingly laid down his life for you and for me. Behold, the Son of God today. I want to pray for you as we prepare to respond to the word of the Lord that's spoken in this place. I want to ask you to just bow your head with me and close your eyes all over this room. Take a moment to, in your heart, in your mind, behold the Son of God. That all of our iniquity, iniquities were laid upon Him. If there's any sin in your life today, if there's anything that's separating you from having a relationship with God, I want to remind you, friends, the sacrifice has been made, paid in full. It is finished. The word of the Lord says, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just, and He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that word confess, it just means to say the same thing that God says about it. So let's have a moment right now of honesty with God. Holy Spirit, we invite you to search our hearts, search our minds. If there's anything in us, Lord, that, that we need to confess to you, God, we... We lay our reproach on Jesus today, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. And God, we believe that the work Jesus did was enough. It was enough to cleanse us from all of our guilty stains. So Lord, we just receive again right now, we receive, Lord, new mercy. We receive your grace. We receive your forgiveness. As Isaiah said, though my sins be as scarlet, he will wash them whiter than snow. Father, I thank you for the work of redemption. As we move in this final week towards the celebration 
of Christ coming in Bethlehem's manger, God, may we not forget that that manger sits in the shadow of a cross. That Jesus was born to die. A son of promise, a son of Mary, but also a son of God. So Lord, today we don't take lightly the work you've done for us. God, let us live in response to the grace that you've shown us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. 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 I'm going to invite you to stand with me.